Welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar, The Colloquium. Uh, this is our seventh class, our seventh speaker for the spring semester, and we're very excited. Uh, we have uh, Ruthie Stokes, who is a PhD student from the biochemistry department uh, and one of our Ag Biofuse fellows who will be introducing today's speaker. So I'm gonna let Ruthie take it away. Hello, everyone. Have you heard of the old age, jack of all trades, master of none, a saying my father often told me. If you have heard of this saying, you probably didn't, wasn't aware like myself that that's the shortened version. Originally, the complete saying was a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. With Dr. Santos' extensive background, you will soon understand why she says that saying is a good fit for her. She graduated with her veterinary degree in Brazil and soon after moved to the U.S. to pursue her Ph.D. in poultry science right here at NC State. Dr. Santos finished the program with a double major in poultry and animal sciences and a double minor in food safety and biotechnology. Before working at NC State, she worked for the Brazilian Ministry of Agriculture as a research scientist, the Event Health University Teaching Microbiology epidemiology, genetics, and pathophysiology to students in aligned health programs. And she also worked at the Event Health Hospital as a research scientist. Here at NC State, she is responsible for coordinating the graduate food safety minor and teaching several courses within the food science program, including food models and regulations. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fernanda Santos. Thank you. Thank you, Ruthie. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Let me share my screen so you can see the presentation. All right, so um, uh, thank you so much for the good introduction. And I hope I, I was telling earlier that I can bring some good information to you. Um, if I don't have all the answers for the questions that you have, I promise I can find them. So um, I would like this to be a very informal discussion. And it's really, I wanna share what I've learned studying a little bit of food loss because of a class that I have to teach. And I think the regulation of genetically engineered foods is something so interesting for us to discuss and see how we can do it better. I guess that's that's my point. I think it's just giving information and I think our minds together can think of the problems that we have right now and how we can solve them. So I will present some information as we go through the slides and I welcome if you have questions. I do have a few questions um, throughout the presentation. So I just wanna give you a general overview of food regulation, but, and then we go into genetically engineered foods regulation. So let's get started with, let me see if my mouse is here, yep. Let's get started with our agenda. So my intention is that we will go over a quick overview of food law in general. Then we will do a, another overview of the regulation of foods in general. And then we take that information and then we look at the regulation of genetically engineered foods. Fair? Um, all right. So first thing that I wanted to discuss is the definition of food loss. So I want you to think about what you thought or what you know, what food law actually is. And in reality, if you look through food law um, books and publications, it's really, when we say food law, it's really food regulatory law, which means is that food regulations that is meant 
for that were was meant or were meant to two audiences, lawyers and regulated food industry. So uh, formulated foods. But we know that this food regulatory law, it's not what it is, what it was before. So right now there's a lot more. So what is everything else that is now in food law, what is considered in food law? So I want you to think about those things too. So this, you know, what are the laws besides the regulatory law that is involved with food? So agricultural tra trade is very important. You know, how, how consumers today, they want to know how food is grown and if we are being humane to the animals that we are uh, raising for food, what are the environmental um, impact of food production and what are the environmental rules for farms and for processors, right? So all of that, it's also part of food law, the food regulatory law today, okay? So just just you know, having that concept that food law is not just for food manufacturing as it was before. All right, so my first question is, so why is food regulated? I always start my class, my food laws class with that, questions, uh, that question for students. If you could say like in, in very a summarized way in one sentence, why is food regulated? Think about for a second. And Jennifer, I don't know if people are typing, so if you can tell me if anybody has said anything. I I will do that. So, uh, and you can unmute yourself. If yeah. you, I, I just want to hear, what do you think, you know, why do we regulate food? Uh, Rebecca Brown has said safety. Okay. And that is one of the first answers I have, I get from my students, right? Because we want food to be safe. And so actually there are two simple reasons why food is regulated. Basically is to protect against um, food that is not good for us. So safety and fairness. So it's to protect us against economic fraud and the sale of unsafe food. More specifically, the regulation uses two, uh, two specific terms, adulteration and misbranding. So food is regulated because of adulteration and misbranding. And these are actually a, a snip from the code of um, you, uh, the United States code, um, which you can actually see in the whole description on how food is considered adulterated. So there are two sections under Title 21, Chapter 9, and I promise I'm not going to make us read any of that. But I just want you to see that actually, even though there is a whole session describing what adulteration is and misbranding is, those are the summary. We cannot produce adulterated food and we cannot produce misbranded food. Okay, quick question. If you were, I mean, I think we have heard this um, terms, you know, adulteration and misbranding. Okay, I lost my mouse. There it is. Misbranding and adulteration, I bet you have heard those. What do you think is the difference? Because they are different, right? There are actually two different sections for them. What it is a food that is adulterated and what it is a food that is misbranded? Can I have some participation? What do you think? I promise I'm not going to call on you too many times. 
Um, Ashton Merck says adulterated is unsafe to eat and misbranded is not what it says it is. Perfect. Actually, those are um, the easiest way of looking at. Good. Thank you for the participation. So adulteration is related to the composition of food and it is the presence of any poison substance that in, which include pathogens. So when foods have foodborne pathogens, which is you know my my alley, um, they are considered adulterated because pathogens are not supposed to be there, right? Perfect definition. And then second, for misbranding, it's exactly what you say. It's related to identity of the food. So a label that doesn't say there's an ingredient in there and a label doesn't list that. So it, it's related to identity of food. So perfect. I want you to take that those you know this information that this information that we are talking about and hold on to that because that it will be very important as we go into the genetically engineered regulation the genetically engineered foods regulation okay so let me see if I can pass on there you go all right so we learned we discussed why food is regulated and then I think it's also important for us to say how is food regulated, right? We know that by the regulation, foods must be safe and wholesome, right? So the laws and the regulations provide guidance on, on what, you know, what to do to ensure that foods are safe and wholesome. But and then the next question is, who establishes that? You know, who establishes that the food is not adulterated or misbranded, because that's what the regulation says, right? They cannot be adulterated or misbranded. So who establishes that? So that's another question that I sometimes I get uh, confused answers. And many of my students say, well, it's the government. It's the government's responsibility to ensure that food is adulterated or that's not adulterated or misbranded. But in reality, is the food business's responsibility and obligation actually to establish that the food is not adulterated or misbranded. It's not the government responsibility to prove that the food, it's not that. So um, the government though is responsible to act if there is a reasonable belief that the food is either adulterated or mis misbranded or both. And then they are responsible to treat that food uh, as adulterated and misbranded until it's proven otherwise. So who has to prove that the food is good, safe, and wholesome? It's actually the food industry. So that's another piece of information that I want you to hold on to it as we um, move on, okay? All right. Okay, so let's just go over a little bit of an overview on the regulatory agencies, right? Food is actually regulated by several, several agencies. This is just a snippet, and it's just listing the most important ones. That is not the full list, so just a disclaimer for you. All the ingredients, so food, when we say food, we can look at the food as a whole food, right? Now think about a melon or an apple or manufactured foods, which are the formulated foods, right? We have, we have several ingredients. So when we get into the formulated foods, that's when the conversation gets complicated, right? Because you have several ingredients as part of that food. 
the way the agencies regulate, they take those formulated foods, and basically this is actually the job of the FDA, and the FDA defines what we call the standard of identity. So for example, if you're selling hot dogs, what does it mean to have a label on a food that is hot dog? There's actually a description of several ingredients that can and should be part of that food to be called hot dog. So that is a standard of identity. Again, not important concept that I want you to hold on to it. So all these ingredients in a multi-ingredient food must be found acceptable, right? Because they are being used in food for human consumption. And so they have to satisfy the requirements of one of several categories, actually major, <clears throat> excuse me, three categories for ingredients. So this is what we call food additives. Food additives are those ingredients that are added intentionally to the food. Another very important information, um, additives, can, additives can be classified in three major classes uh, in the regulation. They're either approved additives, so companies have to prove to, to the FDA um, that these additives are safe for consumption and in which ways they're gonna be used in foods and which foods they're gonna be added to. Then the second category is what we call the general recognized as safe or grass. And so those are have been used um, since, since before the some most of the regulation has actually been in place and they're just considered safe. Or if they're new, companies must prove that they are safe for consumption and they don't have to go through the approved additive. Um, approval process, which I don't want to get into detail, that detail, but I just want you to know um, that these are actually exist. And one example of a, a grass ingredient would be salt, right? We know, one. I mean, salt could be dangerous too, right? But um, we know that it's generally, generally recognized as safe for human consumption. And then there are actually a third category that we call the prior sanctioned additives. And those are additives that were prior considered safe and approved for use in the food industry prior to 1958, when we have uh, some of the amendments to the Food and Drug Cosmetic Act, um, which then mandated the regulation of food additives. So all of that information for you to see that the regulation of food goes into certain details. And these are important information. So that this piece of information are important because they will apply to genetically engineered foods later on. So as you can see here, there is actually a multi-agency, right? Like we have the EPA, we have the uh, FDA, of course, which actually regulates most of our food. And here there are other foods that, uh, I'm sorry, other agencies that regulate um, portions of the, I guess, the commercialization of food, alcohol, and then we have the USDA. Just basic that the difference between FDA and the USDA is we have meat, poultry, and eggs, and catfish that are regulated by the USDA. Everything else is regulated by the FDA in terms of food. Okay, so pretty daunting job, daunting job to regulate those. All right, so before we move on, I want I, I saw that quote from Stephen Hawking, and I thought it was interesting to add here, even though 
we are not talking about um, human human genetic modification. We're talking about food, right? But I I want to I don't mean that this is not an important discussion. I think it is, but I want to take that uh, sentence. And I want you to think about, you know, he said that with genetically engineer, we'll be able to increase the complexity of our DNA and improve, improve the human race. I actually want to take the essence of this mes message and think about this for a second. And um, I, I just want to say that we can, we can actually improve human race even indirectly with genetic, genetically engineered, not only by modifying human DNA, but to, to modify the foods and be able to have enough food and nutritious food to everyone. So I, th I, I know when I saw that, that, that um, statement, it made me think of how much more we can do with genetically engineering. All right. Um, there are problems, right, with genetically engineering, and people are concerned. And again, the focus of this presentation is to tell you what we do in terms of regulation, but I think it's still important to uh, voice the concerns, and I think the concerns that are valid. So when, when we look at the actual regulatory process, let's take those concerns into consideration as well. So those are believed that are valid. So for example, common plants, you know, if it, for me, this is me, again, a personal, personal compiling of concerns. When I read the concerns, you know, posted everywhere, I see those three things. Common plant pests could develop resistance to the introduced pesticides in GE crops. So, you know, they, they see that as a problem because now GE crops are resistant to the pesticides and you can use more and then you, you lead the other pests, you know, pests in that, that crop to be resistant to. Second, crop modifies to be tolerant to herbicides could foster the evolution of super weeds, right? Spreading those um, resistance genes or the creation or enhancement of a food allergen or, or a toxin. Again, like I said, I think they are valid. I want you to hold on to that information because and then we are gonna go into how, how the genetically engineered crops and animals are regulated. And I want us to consider those three things. So in general, at least from you know, one, one very, very good book, I listed the, my, that book in my references. So Dr. Neil Fortin as the author of Food Regulation, and I think he was very um, bright when he wrote his book, A Food Loss, and he's, he's compiled a lot of information in one specific chapter that talks about genetically engineered foods. And so, these are some of the things he lists in his book. Um, we already talked a little bit about the allergic reactions, right? Uh, people are afraid that the, there is a higher risk of allergic reactions to GE foods compared to conventional foods. Other problems like systemic problems, if any of these components, there's these new components that are present in GE foods then start to accumulate and might cause liver problems or reproductive issues. So based on the information that I read, and especially from Dr. Fortin, 
there is the, every panel of scientific experts that had um, uh, that had been assembled. They have agreed that there is no higher risk from our uh, recombinant DNA technology different from found in, found in conventional breeding. And why I'm saying this because this is important as we try to regulate these foods, right? So hold on to that information. Uh, and another thing too that I wanted to think about: these problems are not problems only of genetically engineered foods, right? People have developed allergies to conventionally bred um, foods, plants, and well, animals. We, we can discuss about that later on. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting discussion. But in any case, plants will produce, will develop, will, will uh, produce toxins as their own way of uh, protection, right? So we know that this is something that is real, not only for genetically engineered foods. Okay, I'll go to that information. So let's let's put another piece of information here into the issues. So one thing is that I think that the government could do a little bit, bit a better job is to define, right, what genetically modified organism is because the term has been used so much and um, currently there's not a, a official regulatory definition for it. Um, one thing that I already mentioned less in, um, in the last section is selective breeding also causes genetic modification and also generates new products within that plant specifically, right? And so it, it doesn't have to be through genetically engineering to cause those uh, genetic modification. We know that. So what it is different about the genetically engineered methods, uh, um, recombinant DNA technology that is different from conventional breeding, right? So this is the question that regulatory agencies are asking when they are creating these laws for the foods that we're eating. What makes them different? from conventional breeding, if conventional breeding also uh, does selection, genetic selection. And to me, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert, you are the expert, expert, but we know that conventional breeding is based on random mutations, right? And sometimes forcing mutations into these genomes, like using um, mutagenics agents and radiation and chemicals and, you know, so forth. So what makes them different? What makes these this final breeds different? And so that's that's the question that we have to answer for us to be able to create the, the, the different regulations that would be then giving the, the agency authority to regulate them, okay? All right, so starting from bird's eye view, from, in terms of biotechnology regulation for our, our foods, we have the what, what the U.S. called the coordinated framework, right? It's not the FDA alone to regulate the plants, which it's it hasn't been the FDA alone to regulate our foods, right? So we just saw a few slides ago that USDA, the USDA, the FDA, and the EPA, they regulate our foods. They have their specific... Um, jobs as they are regulating our foods, but this is no different, right, from what already happens. So within the USDA, we do have two very specific 
um, agencies that are important to mention. So the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, the APHIS, and the Food Safety Inspection Service that, were, that would be directly involved in the regulation of genetically engineered foods. Besides that, and again, I'm not going to read all those, but those are the different regulatory statutes or acts or uh, regulations that these three branches of the government use as their authoritative power to regulate foods, okay? And as you can see, these are to regulate foods in general. So they are the ones that give authority to these agencies to also regulate genetically engineered foods because they are going to be used for human consumption, right? Um, so hold on to that information. And, and then we're gonna go now into some of the details of the regulatory process. And again, as I, can, as I said in the beginning, if there's any information that wasn't clear, please let me know. And if I don't know the answer, I will look for the answer for you. But in general, when these agencies come together, they have their specific, um, I guess, jobs, right? So the FDA, it's regulating foods for human consumption, but the FDA comes in and they are responsible to regulate the pesticides used, right? And the, and the, um, the possibility of pesticides to be uh, present in food. So there you see the, 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 the they work together between APA and the, the FDA. Same thing for the genetically organisms or genetically engineered foods. So the, the idea is before these foods are approved for production and, and, and human consumption, they even have to prove that these foods are safe, right? For, for, for humans, animals, and the environment. So they first start with contained use. So that way, if there's anything wrong, they can prevent the spread. Then they move on to confined environment release. So that way, if something goes wrong, they can go back to contained use. And then finally, when the safety tests are uh, conducted and they are optimistic, optimistic and they, are, um, they have good results, then they go into large-scale release. This is important because this is the environmental piece, right? Beyond this, so this is how these new plants are going to behave in the environment. But beyond this, now the interest for us as you know, food scientists is to know if when these foods, these plants are used either as a whole or as an ingredient, if they are going to be safe. So uh, safe, and we are going to be able to uh, pay a fair price for them or get what we are paying for. Um, so again, some of the, the links are listed here. Some of them are listed at the end. And just a general overview of the regulation of genetically engineered foods. So the FDA in general regulates most of human and animal foods. So FDA is also responsible to regulate animal feeds, you know, rations and you know, for chickens, cattle, and so forth, uh, swine including GE foods. So the FDA has to make sure that the foods that are GE or have GE ingredients. So in our case, as you move on to formulated foods, not all the ingredients might be GE, but if they do have a GE genetically engineered ingredient, they have to meet the same strict safety standards that all other foods meet. 
And so FDA, FDA has the authority to set and enforce the food safety standards for those who produce, process, store, ship, and sell food, no matter how they were created. So again, you see, they'll bring all that information that we, we discussed in the beginning that you can then understand the regulatory process. Uh, let me see if I forgot anything. Yeah, so again, remember that I said in the beginning, who is responsible to enforce, to ensure that the, force, that the food is not um, adulterated or misbranded? It's not the FDA, right? The, the obligation to ensure that the food that is being sold is not adulterated or misbranded, which means they're wholesome and safe, is the company's obligation. And so that's the approach, right? So the company that are the, the companies that are producing those genetically engineered foods, they are the ones that are responsible to prove that their food is safe and um, is wholesome. Now the question is that I usually see in the discussion is, is this right? You know, the, is the FDA right in doing that? you know, leaving to the companies the job to prove that the food is safe. So really what FDA looks at, it's equivalency, which means is no matter what you're producing, no matter how you are producing really, at the end, what, what the regulatory agency is looking for is that these genetically engineered foods are equivalent to their uh, conventional counterparts. Now, again, what I'm saying is, this is how it's done. Is it the right way of doing it? So, you know, that, that's another discussion. Okay, so yeah, so mingle, mingle, no matter if it's G or if it is conventionally produced, organisms, foods must be safe for human, plant, animal health and the environment, no matter how they are, no matter how they were produced. All right, so let me give an example. And this is another thing that I usually get questions is the approval process, right? Um, we, we see people posting information saying, oh, you know, there's, there are no tests done and they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, in that sense, and, and I, I wanted to give you this example because this one I lived. Uh, as Ruthie mentioned in the beginning, I had the pleasure to work for the Department of Agriculture in Brazil or, or Ministry of Agriculture for Embrapa. I don't know if you heard about Embrapa before, but for us in Brazil, Embrapa is like the ARS, the research branch of the Ministry of Agriculture. At the time, I'm, I wasn't working for the Embrapa that um, was responsible for the development of the bean. I was in the uh, tree uh, branch. But in any case, that was new for us. Everybody was excited. And I want you to show some of the impact of the develop of, development of that bean. So it was such a beautiful, beautiful effort between the um, Embrapa researchers and the locally produced, the, the, the local community. So it was actually 100% locally developed crop. Uh, the major reason why they they um, they had that plan and that project was because of a, a virus, the bean, bean golden mosaic, mosaic virus, that would 
cause lost lots of losses. So the estimation was that because of that virus, there was a 300,000 tons of loss per year. And that source that I just gave you tell, tells you a lot of details on the, the approval process, but just the fact that 15 million people could be fed with the beans that were lost because of the disease. To me, this is the magnitude of the project. It's it's already, um, it shows the magnitude of the impact of the project. Then in terms of, again, re regulatory process, and I'm using a Brazilian uh, example because our regulatory process is very similar to the Brazilian one. So the first plant that was actually produced within the laboratory was in 2004. So I was there in 2011 when the, the commercial release was approved and it was such, such a beautiful party uh, within, the, within the research center that I could, I could uh, leave with them, that they were approved. So just the, you know, the, the time frame between the release, the, I mean, the, the, when the plant was produced and to the release, this is not taking lightly. This is, the research was very, very strict to get the, the being uh, released. So again, like I said, it this is not taking lightly. We are not just putting plants out there that can um, hurt us. I mean, why would we do that, right? Not saying that there are bad people out there, but so in terms of uh, regulatory over, uh, regulatory review from the FDA's um, perspective. Again, like we said, it is a combined effort between uh, the EPA, FDA, and USDA. I just wanna give you some of my summary, I guess, to make it easier to understand. So uh, foods that are genetically engineered, they are not, the FDA does not have to prove that they are safe, right? As we already know, the companies have to do that. They have the option to uh, go through the voluntary consultation program, which again, as you can see, is voluntary. And they have they can use the FDA to help them with the approval process. But the question is, does this new plant significantly differs from the conventional one? If it does, the actual plant has to go through the same food additive approval process, which is not easy, that any other food additive goes through. So again, you see the, the idea of equivalency, the, the regulatory process is the same to ensure that the food is safe. If the plant does not uh, differ from the conventional plant, if really what the FDA asks is for um, a voluntary notification, they can still use the voluntary consultation program and then the FDA would um, evaluate the application process. But again, the point that I want you to see here is that what the FDA is trying to show is that there is equivalency, right? In the sense of these foods that now are gonna be consumed by humans, okay? Um, Okay, so this is another important one. That's why I mentioned food additives in the beginning because these plants are, are regulated as such. Now, um, so let me give you another example on how the equivalency equivalency idea works. The, uh, I don't know if you, you know, many of you might 
uh, like cheese, and you might have heard about ramen, right? And um, I don't know if you are interested in know how cheese is made, but ramen is actually a very important component in cheese making. And it's basically an enzyme that is present in rennet. And rennet has been ex extracted for not just years, for centuries from calf's stomach. So they use that enzyme to coagulate the milk and or, yeah, to coagulate the milk and, and make cheese. Well, the first GMO derived, or I like to say genetically engineered, right? Derived food ingredient that was approved in the US was the renin. And what they did back then was trying to replicate the production of renin in the lab to avoid us to have to extract that from calf stomachs. So what they did, they, of course, they isolated the gene and they were able to produce that specific protein in the lab. And I know that, you know, we have the, the history of that even beyond before the renin with the insulin, but this one was the first one approved uh, for human consumption. And so what happened was at the end, the FDA had this protein, the renin, that was produced through genetically uh, recombinant DNA technology using a bacteria or yeast or you know so forth. Now this final protein that was going to be used in cheese making had no difference in conformation, in any structure at all from the renin that was attractive for calf stomach. So the, the final decision was to approve that for human consumption. And so my question is, you know, that one you should think about is, was it wrong to do that, to consider that is this renin produced by uh, our DNA technology different than the other renin, you know? So the question that people ask is, okay, if a novel protein is produced, it has to be regulated as a new ingredient, a new additive. But what is novel about this renin? Is it the protein itself that is novel? You're probably saying no, right? The novel, the novelty is the technology used to produce the renin. The renin itself, it's not novel, has been used for centuries. So if that's the case, what should the safety concerns be? Is, now, is there any safety concern to use that renin? And you know, think about that because the next question is, should that G renin be treated different than the one that is extracted from the calf stomach? Is it necessary? to treat it differently, right? So I wanted to put that in context because this is how the genetically engineered, the new foods are regulated based on their equivalency. All right, so um, I promise I'm getting to the end. Of course, nothing is perfect, right? And um, if you read some of the comments in the evaluation of the FDA process, there's a lot of room for improvement. So the idea right now, uh, at least from the literature that I've um, read about this, yes, the FDA needs to enhance its oversight. We need to improve the expertise and the resources to conduct these reviews. These are new topics and new science and new technology. Well, we say new, right? Since the 90s. I don't know why people are still so concerned because it's not something so new, right? But in any case, 
the uh, employees at the agencies, they need to be um, prepared to review those those um, documents, right? To be able to have a um, educated opinion and know where to look for information to make sure that the information that is being submitted is correct. Correct, uh, correct. Of course, there's always need for greater transparency, right? How this evaluation process is done. Who is looking through these documents to, you know, give the final stamp? And another problem that I think is important to think about is genetic contamination, right? Is is this a problem? We we have heard so many times the fact that you know farms farmers that don't have corn that are genetically engineered. And then a farm by by the side they do, and then they cross uh, pollinate, and so there's this genetic contamination problem. How do we how do we deal with that when a, a conventional crop now has genes from the neighbor, right, and their their um, farm? So yeah, we need to we need to make it better, and we have to recognize that we need to improve our processes, right, because things are changed changing and so we should change as well. Um, so a little bit more, just quickly, how does the um, USDA and the EPA look at the regulations? And so this in, in the case for the APHIS, that's how they they are plugged into. So they have to, so their mission is to safeguard animal and plant resources from the US, right? From pests, noxious weeds and, and disease. So technically, these new crops could potentially be noxious or could they, they could uh, cause disease in animals. So they have to, to show that that's not the case, right? So, um, so the request for authorization for field trials is, goes through the USDA and there is an, an eligibility criteria. If the producer or developer meets the criteria, the field trial is authorized. If they don't, then they have to actually submit a permit application. And so the documentation now becomes a little bit more detailed. And then the uh, APHIS can decide if they would approve the, the trial or not. So that's basically uh, the role of APHIS in this uh, authorization process. So this is even before the FDA comes in to approve for human consumption. Now for the EPA, EPA it's very interesting. And again, you will see the equivalency notion and how the EPA uh, role is. So under the um, Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act, the um, EPA regulates pesticides. So no pesticide can be sold or used commercially until it has been approved. And the term that they, the EPA uses registered by the EPA for their use in response to this application process that they have to submit, the pesticide developer has to submit. So to re register a pesticide, EPA must find that that pesticide will not cause, so again, we have to be very, very um, condescending to the to the regulatory tech, uh, terminology. So, the EPA must find that the pesticide would not cause unreasonable adverse effect on the environment. So, see, so it, it's the, the the developer has to prove that any unreasonable risk to men or the environment should be proven. 
Same thing for any chemical pesticides or any plant that has what they call a um, plant-incorporated protectant that is seen by the FDA as a pesticide, right? So they are regulated as any chemical pesticide, okay? And again, I showed you, uh, I mentioned about the uh, FIFRA or the Federal Insect Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, but also under the uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, Act the, the EPA also has the authority to decide whether and under what conditions the pesticide substance may be present in food, okay? So that's when FDA and the EPA work together. Let me see. So one little note on genetically engineered animals, because this is also coming, um, coming up, right? Uh, you probably have heard about the salmon that grows faster. Uh, the pig with no, the, the protein that causes allergy that has been removed. So that's another one. And, you know, who knows what else comes in. How right now genetically engineered animals are regulated. So they are actually under the FDA authority. Because what FDA regulates is the RDNA the, the construct. So that new DNA segment is regulated as a new animal drug. So again, the whole process that the developer has to follow is as any other new animal drug that is being regulated. So it requires an application with detailed information about that construct. And then the FDA has several check marks when they are evaluating. So they look at, you know, if, the, if that construct has any potentially mobilizable DNA sequences, whether they encode for pathogens, toxins, allergens, substances likely to dysregulate control of growth cells, tissues, so anything that would actually harm the animal or harm somebody that eats the animal, right? Or anything that is formed in or on that food that is the result of a genetically engineered to make sure that whatever it is that might be formed in the food is safe for human consumption, okay? All right, so lastly, you know, the uh, USDA FSIS, which in this case is our inspection service, right, for meats, meat, poultry, and eggs, and they are the ones that would enforce the tolerance of these new animal drugs in meat, poultry, and eggs, because those are the foods that they regulated. Again, nothing different from the regular regulation of foods. That's how it happens. For any new animal drugs, the USDA, um, the FSIS would actually enforce those tolerance. And it's the same thing for genetically engineered. So there is this open communication between the FDA doing their uh, um, with the FDA doing the approval process so that the FSIS are the ones that will regulate and enforce those tolerances in the animals that they regulate that we uh, use for human consumption. So again, a new drug approval requires a review of the environmental risks under the National Environmental Protection, Protection Act. And it has to include and show that any potential for inadvertent release or escape of the GE animal. To me, this is a very important part of the, the safeguard. 
that these animals that are being raised that are genetically engineered has no potential to be released in, or escape into the environment. They have to be kept in captivity. Like they have to be in a place where they have no potential to escape. All right, um, so you probably are very familiar with this thing, you know, this timeline. And again, it's just to reinforce that this is not nothing, nothing new, really. And we have been exposed to genetically modified crops for two decades now, <laughs> more than that, right? <laughs> for sure. And um, I think we should, again, make sure that they are safe for consumption. But we should not hinder progress. We should not stop something because we can't um, get enough information if they're there for we have to get enough information that they are safe. And once we have that, then we have to move on with our lives, right? Because in reality, it's you know, as we, we look through the experts review. Our tests are adequate. We have technology to evaluate the safety because again, going back to the first slide, to the safety of these products. Um, if they do share more health risk concerns than conventional plants, then we have to treat them as such. But if they don't, why would they be regulated differently than any other food, right? So what is, why can't we use the equivalency for those foods? Um, and then, you know, I, so this is, this is really my last slide. I, I, I have some questions, right? And, and I, I try to have those discussions with my students and to make sure that whenever we say things, we know what we are saying. So one of the things that I get is, you know, I want natural, I want natural foods. And, and then my question is, so what is natural food? You know, what is a natural food ingredients? ingredient? Just because they are synthetic, does that mean that they're bad? You know, what makes a synthetic ingredient different from something that is um, um, extracted from the nature or purified from nature? You know, what, what makes that chemical different? And then, you know, are genetically engineered food natural? And really, it might, does it make any difference if, they, if they're not? You know, so, so I have some of these questions in my mind. Um, the genetic modification, we already talked about that. We know that a lot, most of the foods, actually, most of the plants that we, we eat today, they have been genetically modified over time. Why making that genetically modification much more targeted, much more efficient, more dangerous? And then... My last question is, because this is another discussion that we have in classes, you know, when we think about risk and safety, there is a balance, right? Like, can anyone in any production system, in any profession guarantee a 0% risk or 100% safety in anything that we do, right? So where, so my question is, in terms of regulation, 
we have to draw the line and then start regulating them and know what we're doing, right? So I don't know. I don't know if I if I left you with more questions than answers. I my intention is not to have all the answers. I, I for sure I don't, but I just want you to think about those those piece of information all together. Um, I will share my information with um, Dawn and Jennifer. And I have, you have some of my links already and I can share this as slides and have links for the, some of the references I, I read. And this is my contact information. If you need to get in contact with me, please do so. I'd love to talk to you more. And if you have any questions, thank you so much. Thank you, um, Fernanda. That was very informative. I think we have time for maybe one or two quick questions. So if anyone would like to ask, please use the raise your hand function or very quickly type it in the chat and I will read it. Um, and while we're waiting, just quickly, can you tell me, you, you mentioned that the USDA regulates catfish. Can you tell me why catfish and no other fish? <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. Um, I actually asked my students, I was like, can you explain to me why the USDA is regulating catfish? Um, well, the whole story, if you actually start typing, you will see a lot of discussion behind the catfish regulation. But the real, real um, reason is to protect our internal production of catfish. A lot of our catfish is imported and and the way the FDA does and the USDA does, whenever we import food, people out there, they have to abide to the same regulations that we do internally, right? So when they are exporting to us, they have to do the same things we do. So that way the safety is the same. Um, but the problem was there was a concern that other places, other countries, they the, the production of catfish was just a lot more cheap, cheaper than what we could do internally. And so taking the, because catfish was originally regulated by the FDA, taking that into the USDA regulation, it made it a lot more strict. So it was the strictness of the rules, which some people say that was because of safety, but there's, there's also politics in, in the midst of that, but it is. So the USDA regulation in terms of uh, imports and exports is a lot more strict in that sense, especially for uh, because of animals, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so that was basically because of that to enforce those stricter uh, regulations. Okay, thank you. And Ashton has put a um, just a, a source to read more about it in the chat yeah. if anyone is interested. <laughs> and then just very quickly before we have to go, Willie Way has a comment. He says, thanks for the excellent presentation. I have a comment. The aim of regulation could be to have control over the things used for food. For the example of GE renin, the difference is the new technology to produce the renin, natural renin, existed for a long history in nature. Nature has performed a trial for us for a long time to prove the safety. Although the GE product, uh oh, my chat jumped. Although the GE product renin is not different from the natural one. We may need to observe its safety for a sufficient duration to see if we have control over any potential risk, especially if it could be important to apply a precautionary approach in dealing with biotech mm -hmm. that works on microbial or pathogens. Yep. Yeah. And I, I agree that we have to make sure that we establish the equivalency. Yeah. I think that 
key thing for me is the establishment of equivalency. If they are equivalent, then there's no question because they're the same, right? They just have a different way that they were produced. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, can everyone help me thank uh, Fernanda Santos for this very informative talk? And um, we will share those slides when we get them um, so that you can have all of the resources um, when you have more questions. Um, so thank you very much. And before everyone logs off, I'd like to remind uh, you, Jason and, and Patty have reminded me to say that there will be a special book doll lecture on science, technology, and human values this Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. in the Tally Coastal Ballroom. And the title is, Are Innovation Systems Stacked Against Equity? The uh, presenter will be Shobita Parthasarathy. And um, there is a link in the chat. So if you're interested in that, click on that and you can find more information. And next week, we will have Jack Wang talking to us about GE wood or fiber production. So we will see you next week. Thank you again for joining us. And thank you again, Dr. Santos, for the very informative talk. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.